My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask you for pardon of my sins and grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Mother Immaculate, Saint Joseph, my Father, Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Coming up to Christmas, everybody wants to go home, so much so that even now the government realise that there's nothing they can do about this irresistible urge of people to get home for Christmas, and they just have to adapt the COVID restrictions accordingly. We see it in song lyrics all the time, home for Christmas. One way or another, Alvis, Chris Ria, Jonah Louis, the Eagles, always singing about getting home for Christmas. It's so natural for us to think of our families at this time of year. It's a kind of reminder to us that whatever else happens, family is really important. Family cannot be forgotten. We might use this time of year to mend, clo mend broken fences, to get close again to our, our families. And certainly we think that you, Lord, want us to do this at this time of year. This is something that you, you want. You give us this very special season of Christmas, in large part to think of our families, to be with our families to remind ourselves how much I owe to my parents, how much I owe to my siblings, how I should be united to them. For those with children, likewise, how much they have to take to heart their role as parents. But you, Lord, want us to come home in a deeper sense at Christmas, and that is to come home to the Holy Family, which is a, a family that God has prepared for us for all eternity. Our families in this world, we could call them our earthly family, is so important. And yet it is not nearly as important as the, the family that we are, are called to spend all of eternity with. We will have a special link for sure with our, our earthly family and a special link for all eternity. I remember a man telling me how he had a, a dream. It wasn't a it wasn't a, a near death experience or anything, but it was a dream in, in which he, he died in his dream and he went to heaven. And as he entered into heaven, the first people he met were his parents, and he had a realization that he would have to spend part of his eternity in heaven giving thanks to his parents for having given him life. Now, I think that's an ordinary dream to, to have that kind of realization in a dream is quite something. And it's, but it's so true. Uh, those of us, all of us are children, um, the, 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 the debt of gratitude that we owe to our parents, not only for our life on this earth, but also, with the grace of God, that we do go to heaven for our, our eternal life. They have made that possible. So it is a it is a it, it, such an important thing our 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 family, but again, the eternal family that we are made to belong with is much greater. 
It is a family. It is a family ultimately of the Blessed Trinity. John Paul II, St. John Paul II, he says, God in his deepest mystery is not a solitude, but a family, since he is in himself fatherhood, sonship, and the essence of the family, which is love. It's very clear, God is family. And not only that, but a family that has wanted to open itself. Many families don't, even kind of fairly good families. They, they close in on themselves. Uh, they, they don't really want the complications of others. Uh, the Blessed Trinity is so different. The Blessed Trinity has opened up and, and as it were said, we cannot keep this happiness, this family joy to ourselves. A bit like some people do precisely at Christmas. They feel, well, so, so sorry for people who don't have a family and maybe bring them in on Christmas Day or around the Christmas season and uh, perhaps a lonely relative. And it's a very nice thing to do, of course. But that is what God does. God's God, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, the family, a family, the perfect, you could say the archetypal family, opens up and says, well, we want to create creatures to become part of this family for all eternity to enter into the joy of this family. And so that is our, if we could put it this way, our, our real family, our definitive family. And that is also something that we have to think of at Christmas in a very special way. That God, you have wanted it to take me into you who are a family. Augustine says in one of his sermons, God was made man, that man might be made God. Another way of putting that is God was made man so that man might be able to enter into the family that is God. Otherwise, well, maybe not strictly speaking, um, but otherwise, as far as we can see, impossible. That there's no other way that we could have been brought into this family, which is the Blessed Trinity. So let's ask the Holy Spirit, part of that family that we will spend all eternity with, for the grace to reflect on these things, especially in this Advent season, as we do approach, as we do approach Christmas, as we contemplate the child in the crib, or we prepare ourselves to, to contemplate the child in the crib. Let us re realize and, and be struck, amazed again by the fact of what we call our divine filiation, that we have been, not just, in, not just after our death, but now it has already begun. We have been brought into this family in grace, through grace, the transformation of grace. Sometimes the term theosis is used, meaning to divinize. And this is what grace does to us. It really transforms us into a child of God. And that's not being poetic or metaphorical, but really adopted, but really a child of God. And this is one of the greatest mysteries of our faith. One of the most important things about our faith, the reality of God's love for us. The Predator of Opus Dei, he said recently, he said the fundamental truths of the faith are the Trinity and the Incarnation. But from the existential point of view of our lives, what is more immediately vital for us 
is faith in God's love for us. This is what gives meaning. It's the only way to find meaning in so many things that aren't good, big and small. It's very interesting. So it's the most vital thing about our faith, the reality of God's love for us, faith in this love for us. And it's the only thing that can give meaning, as he says, to the suffering, the suffering in our lives. St. Rosemary had a dramatic experience of this at the age of 29. A young priest, uh, just um, three years into founding Opus Dei, and it was not easy for him. It was all uphill. And, and I think he must have been quite taken aback, in fact, by the amount of obstacles that he encountered. But in that, in that period, God gave him a supernatural, certainly mystical, experience of what it means to be a child of God. And you may have heard this. He was on a tram, October 1931, in Madrid, and he was given an interior illumination of divine filiation. And he said after he, he spoke, talking about this, saying that he just repeated the words Abba Pater, Abba Pater, Abba, Abba being the Aramaic, or the Hebrew, for father or daddy even. You hear little children now in Israel talking to their fathers and they'll, talk, they'll say Abba, just as we would say dad or daddy. Pater, in Latin for father, and he repeated this again and again and again. Abba Pater, words that come from St. Mark's Gospel, in fact, quoted from Jesus. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. That is the way he addresses his father. In the midst of that terrible suffering, as if to tell us, God is my father, even though he sends me suffering. He loves me tenderly, even while wounding me. So, existentially, from the existential point of view, practical point of view, this is key for us. And really, nothing more key. The, the doctrine of the Trinity and the Incarnation are more important, they're greater truths, they're more fundamental. But from the point of view of just day-to-day -day living, how we need to be aware of this. How we need to be aware of this, when we sometimes doubt it, and the one thing that can make us doubt, and I, I think it's old Nick who gets in there, when we, when we fall away, when we, when we sin, when we become aware of our, our miseries for one reason or, no, or another, we can just feel, I suppose you could say, bad about ourselves, and we don't feel so lovable. And these are moments when we might think, well, uh, who could love me? let alone God the Father. How, how could I be loved by God the Father? And this is a temptation because I suppose of all the things that, that uh, the devil wants it is he wants us to despair of God's love for us. Remember that wonderful parable told us by Jesus, the parable of the prodigal son. This fellow who really goes off and goes crazy and to this faraway country and he's been totally unfair on his, on his father and so on and then the, the famine comes and he, he gets what was coming to him and 
And he has that grace. He came to himself, as Jesus says. Moment of grace, when he literally turns around and goes back to the Father's house, imagining that he, at best, might get some position as a servant or working in the fields or something. And that would still be far, far better than living in the faraway country. And so Jesus describes it in this way. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was yet at a distance, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Jesus doesn't spare the details. He lays it on, we might say, with the trowel. The father waiting for him. Otherwise, he couldn't have seen him at a distance. The father doesn't go out to him. He runs out to him. And he embraces him. And as, and as if that's not enough, he kisses him. And it's amazing. We can see how uh, ardently, Lord, you want us to be so convinced of this incredible love of God the Father. And then the son starts up his little, his little rehearsed lines. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Which might be fair enough, and it might well be true. But the father, funny enough, doesn't even answer him. He doesn't, he doesn't, as it were, pay any attention to this, this declaration of his unworthiness and, and his misery. We presume the father hears those words, Maybe they had to be said, but that's it. It's as if, well, as if nothing. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and make merry for the son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to make merry. So it's really quite wonderful, quite a beautiful uh, portrayal of just how wonderful this father is. The son, well, the son has been very silly. Uh, He's not necessarily grown a whole lot wiser, but he he has repented. Um, But the father, the father is the real hero of this scene. So good, so good to this son of his who has been so... Sorry, irresponsible. And he can't do enough for the son. The best robe, the ring on his hand, the shoes on his feet. The father sees everything that he needs. The poor boy is barefoot. Quick, get him shoes. He's lost his sense of his own dignity. Get him that ring. Uh, he's cold. Get him the robe, not just a robe, but the best robe, and give that to him. And, and then we're going to all celebrate. We're going to all celebrate because this... Nothing could make me happier. Let's ask our Lord to, to really understand this wonderful parable. What, what, what you, Lord, are saying to us through this. Do not doubt for a moment that nothing can get between us and the love of God. Nothing can, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And even the sin... They're terrible sins because the older brother, you know, in, a, in a moment he'll come and he'll, he'll give a list of the, the sins of his little brother, um, kind of rehearse them to the father. Uh, but he, no, no, even all that stuff cannot make the father's love grow cold or in any way distant or in any way, let's give you a, 
a trial period or, or I'm going to be cautious, you know, I don't, I don't think I can trust you with, with a ring or an expensive robe. No, everything. Wonderful. And so the boy's sins actually become the felix culpa that we, we talk about every Easter, the happy fault. The happy fault, talking that's used at Easter in the, in the Easter proclamation. We talk about Eve, Adam's sin as a happy fault because it brought us such a great redeemer. Well, this also is a happy fault, in fact. The happy fault of the prodigal son because now he discovers something that he clearly had not realized before. What a wonder his father is. That he did not he did not really see it. And in fact, later on, the older brother has yet to really see it. The older brother has got his problems too. And, and even there, the father is just ex so exemplary, you could put it that way. So it's, it's, it's something for us to be considering, to meditate on our divine filiation. In practice, how do we do this? What can we do to have a greater sense of our divine filiation? Well, the very first thing is to realize there's not what we do. It's rather a grace, a bit like St. Rosemary in that tram in October 1931. It came out of nowhere. I don't even think he was particularly meditating on divine filiation or, or anything like that. It just came, just came out of the blue. So it's a grace, and so let's ask for that. Let's ask the Holy Spirit because it is seen you know, that the, the Holy Spirit is the one that convinces us of our divine filiation. And so it's something you now in this time of prayer to ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, of all the things that I need to be so aware of, so, so convinced of, and, and especially in those moments when I'm kind of more likely to lose sight of it, as in the moments of suffering, where sometimes I'm, I'm tempted to say or to think, oh, well, would a loving father allow this to happen? That's a kind of a terrible temptation to, and again, old Nick there, but that we have some suffering. We say, oh, well, if I were, if this were my son going through this or my child experiencing this, I wouldn't allow them to ha that to happen. And there we have to be particularly filial. It's, it's, it's a time perhaps when our, our Lord is asking us, God is asking us for, for a slightly heroic divine filiation, that we say, Father, even if you send me this, even if you send me this thing that I really don't want, and in a, almost in a sense, we say this is the last thing in the world I would have wanted to experience. Where I don't want to doubt, not even for a moment, your, your beautiful fatherhood. Just like we see your Lord, you said that wonderful example in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's, he's being asked to undergo the most awful experience that any human being could ever experience. Something that is quite beyond our imagination, in fact. Something so, so, so grave that even the thought of it could kill him. It's, it's really quite mysterious, really. And does he for a moment doubt or say, or even bl kind of blackmail the father, you know, if you don't do this, I will hold it against you for, for ages. No, not, a, not for a moment. He says, Abba, Pater, Daddy, you know, do whatever, your will be done, not my will be done. It's, 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 it's wonderful. And it's a real example for us. Um, avoid those temptations, especially that one, the temptation to doubt the Father's love for me. Another thing we can do, which is, well, I'm sure it's important for us too, is 
to work against defective images of God. We all know that our picture of God, the Father, is very much colored by our own experience of paternity in our life, our own Father. And no matter how good our Father was in, in this life, the Father we grew up with it at home, no matter how good they were, they were not perfect. And to some degree, they will have colored our, our experience of paternity. Perhaps they were too strict, perhaps they were a little bit disinterested, um, whatever it might be. Things that are, cannot be applied in any way to God the Father. And so we have to purify. We have to purify that kind of almost, you could say, feeling about paternity. Because, and in some cases, of course, unfortunately, some people have had uh, maybe a particularly bad experience of paternity. God has allowed it. But they've had an experience that does make it harder for them to understand. Not impossible, just takes a little more work, and then they can have a wonderful experience of God's paternity. But just there is that obstacle that has to be to become overcome, overcoming the, the defective image of of God's paternity, a kind of paternity that's overweening, overprotective, or disinterested and distant, or or angry and stern, or whatever it might be. Let's, be, uh, let's again ask the Holy Spirit also to purify those images out of our mind. Realize they don't apply. The other things, the good things of our, of our own fathers apply. Not those things. They don't, they don't apply to God the Father. They're incompatible with the, the infinite love that the Father has and that is revealed to us. Because we wouldn't have a, a notion about it were these things not revealed to us by Christ, the Son. This is the great revelation. He came, the Son came, or the child came on earth so that we could be children of this Father. This Father who is so forgiving, who is so merciful, who is the Father portrayed in that parable of the prodigal son. We see that you, Lord, relate to, turn to again and again in the Gospel. Always, always absolutely at ease in, in prayer to the Father. And then we have those twice, the transfiguration and the baptism. We have the theophany where the Father speaks to the Son. Behold my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. The, the, the expression, and again a lovely expression, of the Father's love for his only begotten Son. But also that we know that, especially in baptism, because you know, it's no accident that it's at the baptism that that paternal love gets a special revelation. Because, of course, that's what happened at the baptism of us all. The moment we are baptized, God looks at us and sees his Son. And that's, again, the mystery. That's why we're christened. We're made like Christ. We're, we are transformed into Christ. And so he looks at you, he looks at me, and just sees his son again in us. Another little final lesson, I suppose, of, of Christmas is, again, thinking of the scene that we're going to contemplate, the child in the crib. And it's funny because in the in the scene, the nativity scene, and the events preceding the birth of Jesus and the, the events afterwards, a lot is happening. 
understand there's a long journey, there's a search for the inn, there's the finding clearly of the stable or the cave, it's, pr it's preparation by St. Joseph, our lady very busy getting ready for the arrival of her child. Afterwards, the shepherds, um, again after that again, the, the, the magi, and chewing and froing and all these kind of things. And, and there's one person who does absolutely nothing in all of this. And then of course, and he's the center, and that's the child, the infant Jesus, who does just nothing. Um, he's just utterly cared for, Everything, all, all that can be done is done for him by Our Lady and St. Joseph. There's nothing that they, they don't do for the child. And then the, the huge sacrifices they must make protecting the, protecting the child from hunger, from cold. And that little detail he's swaddled. Our Lady has the swaddling cloths ready and swaddles him, as they used to do, from toe to, to head. And and uh, and then protecting him from from Herod and the 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 attack and the depredations of that very depraved man. But and, and on all this, Jesus just does nothing. He's just there. He doesn't merit anything in that sense. He's God, and I suppose it's hard to talk about merit. But but. Humanly speaking, he doesn't merit anything, like any child. It's, in that sense, it's, it's very much the same as any child who arrives. All the efforts, all the attention that go into looking after that child. Why? Well, just, that's it. They're loved. They're the child. And they're loved. And it's not conditional. And it's an incredible love. And it's a wonderful picture for us of ourselves. And how we are loved, how we are loved by Our Lady, by the saints, St. Joseph and, and, uh, and others, and uh, above all by, by God the Father. In that love for the, for the Son, we do see, for the, the infant Jesus, we do see a, a picture of the love of God for each one of us. Again, in a sense, without us meriting anything or, or doing anything, we're just loved because we're the Son, we're the child. No other reason. It's not something that we win in the first in the first place, and that's what this wonderful theosis business achieves. That without meriting anything, without meriting, when most of us are baptized at even a week or two of, of, of life on Earth, um, and, and we're baptized, and we're just loved unconditionally. And it's a wonderful thing. It's funny with little children; you see it. You see, you see it with uh, Santa. Have you yet to uh, encounter a young child who says, why does this beardy fellow from the North Pole want to bring me presents here thousands of kilometers away? What did I do? It's funny how children don't ask themselves that question. Why on earth is, is this man bringing me gifts like this? Why is he so keen that, that I would get my whatever my heart desires, and I just write it in a letter, and I post it in a, in a post box, you know, address Santa at the North Pole, and, and then in the 25th of, uh, of December, hopefully more or less, what, what, I'd, what I'd ask for arrives, and I, I don't bat an eyelid. It's funny, isn't it? And it's that experience of, of um, that kind of unearned love. 
And that's the way we are loved. We, we didn't earn it. We, we preserve it, in a sense, by just staying in God's grace and growing in God's grace, which basically means to become a better receiver of love. That's what we primarily have to be, a better receiver, not a better doer of things, but a better receiver. Just like that infant Jesus, you could just say all he is is a little receptacle of love. That's what he is. And in fact, that is the nature of the second person, the Blessed Trinity, in fact, isn't it? That um, he is just the object of the love of the Father. And that object is another person, the Blessed Trinity, and the love between them is so strong, it's another person. But from all eternity, Jesus is the object, the receptacle of the love of the Father. And he is there in, in, in lying on the straw in the manger in Bethlehem. And, and that's all he is, really. Receptacle of the love of God the Father. And there's so much love. So much love. What a receptacle to, to be able to catch on that love. And that's us. And, and, and that our, and our Lord, of course, is saying that that's what we have to be also. To be a child of the Father is to become a receptacle of love. And prior to doing things it is receiving things being a good receiver we do talk about that people are good at re receiving gifts and so on a kind of passive thing but very very important so let's ask our Lord Our Lady and Saint Joseph to help us again this Advent to know that the, the, the great mystery of our preparation for, for Christmas is to that in me in you that event, that nativity event of Bethlehem would happen again. And again, it's in some mysterious way. And it's that I would be a good receptacle. Um, somehow, there's a receptacle of this infinite fatherly love from heaven for me. I give you thanks, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you for help to put them into effect. My mother immaculate, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my guardian angel, intercede for me.